Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, recorded on February 22nd, is with Robin Hughes, the CEO of Abode Communities, a nonprofit housing owner, developer, and design company based in Los Angeles. Abode Communities is one of the leading nonprofit housing providers in California. Robin and I talk about how Abode has supported its team, its residents, its neighborhoods, and the health of its overall business through COVID. As you're well aware, the low-income resident population, largely black and brown, served by subsidized housing has been disproportionately hard hit by COVID. Robin and I talk about how the services and support provided by Abode, and I know the other nonprofit and for-profit owners of subsidized housing, have really enhanced the stability of this underserved population in health, social, and economic outcomes during COVID. In the career journey part of the conversation, Robin talks about growing up in public housing and the value of bringing lived experience to the table and leadership within this sector. There's lots to unpack and listen for in this episode. The affordable housing and community development business is one of the focused areas of expertise at Terra Search Partners. Our team, led by Greg Melanson and Becky Regan, brings deep history, expertise, and commitment to that business and our work within this space exemplifies the values of our firm. And with the ongoing national housing crisis, with our deepened national awareness around equity, and a new administration bringing resources to these communities is more important than ever. As you've heard me say many times on the podcast, I believe that the real estate business has great impact and responsibility. Nowhere is the contribution of our industry more obvious than in the community development sector. Terra Search is proud to be a leader in this business. A few comments about the evolution of the podcasting world. First, this is episode 91 in the Leading Voices series, and we're preparing for the 100-episode milestone. I'm proud of the archive of stories about business and leadership in the real estate sphere that we've built, available to anyone, anywhere, anytime in the medium that has gained ubiquity. I'm proud of what we've accomplished over these past three years. I also have a few recommendations. First, as I've said before, I start many of my days with The Daily, and now the new Kara Swisher podcast and the Ezra Klein podcast, all New York Times podcasts. I also, these days, I'm really enjoying Willie Walker's conversations, many of which are interviews with the same guests who we've had on the show. It's really interesting for me to listen in on Willie's questions and interactions, especially contrasting his conversations with the same guests. And the big news in the podcast world last week was the new Spotify podcast with Obama and Bruce Springsteen. This, for me, was a holy grail of conversation, and it does not disappoint. So I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation with Robin. If you do and find food for thought, please share this and other episodes with a friend. Please subscribe. Email me at matt@terrasearchpartners.com with ideas or feedback. Take care and enjoy the conversation. Robin Hughes, welcome back to Leading Voices in Real Estate. You're one of the people that I interviewed back in June of 2020 following the George Floyd tragedy for our Black Voices in Real Estate. And I interviewed six people for that, and they were short ones. So we get to do a real one and a long one here today and really talk about your background and what you're doing in the business. So thank you for joining us again. 
Thank you, Matt. I'm really happy to be back with you and your listeners uh, and looking forward to our conversation today. Cool. So I'll give a very brief bio background on you, but I'd like for you to talk about this yourself. But as a refresher to our listeners, you are the president and CEO of Abode Communities, one of the leading nonprofit housing organizations serving California. You've been there 25 years as president and CEO. Wow. Yes, celebrating my 25th anniversary this year. Oh, my God. So we're <laughs> going to talk through that. And then you're also the board chair of the Housing Partnership Network, which is a national organization of the nation's largest housing nonprofits. And you're on the board of the Community Development Trust, one of our clients and great organization that's a national investor in affordable housing and charter schools. And you have other leadership roles. You're a busy person. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe give us the elevator speech on what's Abode Communities, what do you do, how are you in that marketplace, and then we'll jump into the conversation. Yeah, well, great, Matt. And again, thanks for having me with you and your listeners. So Abode Communities, we were started back in the 1960s, and I really think it's great to have a conversation to talk about our origin story, especially during this time, because we were created as a community design center back in the 60s in which the architecture industry was called to actions to address uh, civil rights issues and race issues back in the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And it was created as a place for professional architects to volunteer to engage in the physical built environment and make design and architecture and planning accessible to everyone, so community-based architects. So we come out of a movement of engagement, civil rights, racial equity, urban planning, and community development. And I think that's an important part of who we are today. So that's where I wanted to start. So fast forward 50 plus years later, your Bode Communities, still a nonprofit organization, very much rooted in people, places, and making connections to those two. So we have an architectural studio in-house that delivers design service to our own portfolio, but other nonprofits as well. Our lead work is our real estate work within our real estate development group, primarily doing affordable and supportive housing development through low-income housing tax credits. Mm -hmm. About 18 years ago, we brought on our property management team, uh, who's now managing our entire portfolio. And 20 years ago, we brought on our resident services program, which, which we call Beyond Home. So we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of that program. And I think the unique thing about Abode Communities is that we have this multidiscipline, fully integrated organization that is delivered to each and every one of our affordable housing projects. So our work is grounded in addressing the housing affordability and homeless crisis here in California. Most of our work to date has been in Southern California, but in the last couple of years, we have deepened our impact and expanded our geography to work throughout the state. We have, in our history, developed uh, 50 affordable housing communities, and we're now serving about 13,000 uh, Californians in our work. The other thing that is important for us is that we continue to advance social equity and social justice in our work, whether it's through the delivery of our resident services program, but also by incorporating community facilities within our work. So. Uh, a number of our developments include things like federally qualified healthcare clinics, early education center. We're working on this great charter school boarding school in South Los Angeles. That's really exciting. So it's really about 
bringing uh, investment and resources to low-end communities of color. Mm -hmm. And how much when you have the community facilities, how much is that dealing with the community versus your residents? So when we incorporate other uses on our site, including uh, healthcare and early ed and even retail space, Mm -hmm. the facilities are open to the general public, to the broader community. But of course, our residents are served as well, and especially in the early ed centers, our residents with children that qualify are given top priority. So we see incorporating these uh, community facilities and economic developments as critical for our residents, but for the broader community. Yeah, I've always wondered if maybe you have statistics or anecdotes, but how a community like a tax credit community radiates out beyond your borders and beyond the boundaries of the property to change the block, two blocks, three blocks, four blocks. Yeah, so Matt, I see it happen in a couple ways. You know, obviously by bringing services on site, that creates an opportunity for the broader community to have services on our site. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes I see our affordable housing development, especially when it expands, you know, either a large block or pretty large site, being a catalyst for change in that community. And it comes from perhaps two places. One, we're always working with local government in areas where they want to make investments in communities. So in areas that are targeted for community revitalization. So there's already activity happening in that community. And then we see that there then are changes within the neighborhood, either because, you know, landlords see our beautiful housing that's been developed in that community and sort of recognize that they also have to bring up the quality of the housing and the surrounding community. So it's not unusual for us to see if we're building an affordable housing development and, you know, within the same block, another development, and in between starting to see the, the quality of the housing improve over time. Mm-hmm. And do you do mixed income? What's the kind of how deep do you target sure. exclusively mm-hmm. versus more mixed income stuff? So currently 100% of our affordable housing uh, is targeted towards extremely low, low and very low income families and seniors. And we're also doing permanent supportive housing to bring uh, housing to people who are experiencing homelessness. And that's individuals as well as family. In our pipeline right now, we are doing a sort of workforce development in the San Francisco Bay Area that is targeted towards um, teachers. Uh, It's actually in Santa Clara County, and we're working with several school districts there. But we also collaborate in joint venture with for-profit developers. We're now doing a project in West Los Angeles that will be the revitalization of, I think it's about a 20-acre site that will include affordable housing, supportive housing, market rate housing, civic uses, as well as community uses. So in our projects, we try and incorporate, you know, the span of housing with our focus and target being on serving low-income people of color. Mm-hmm. And do you have this image of this being in all low-income neighborhoods versus in, I think we now call these neighborhoods of opportunity versus mm-hmm. concentrated areas of poverty. So think about the, mm-hmm. that continuum there. Do you do both and how does that work? So, you know, as an advocate in this work, I think it's really critical that we continue to build housing in all communities. So lower opportunity, high poverty community, affordable housing is often 
the only investment in construction that is happening in those communities, and it's where the need is. Mm -hmm. And so we should continue to invest in those neighborhoods, and a Bode community absolutely does that. The other thing that we're seeing is gentrifying neighborhoods. So we also think that as neighborhoods are emerging or gentrifying, that the people who live in those communities continue to have an opportunity to benefit from the economic uh, investment that's happening in the community. So building housing and gentrifying communities is critically important to abode communities and that we are setting our rents in those cases at levels that continue to meet the needs of the extremely low income folks that live there. And then, yes, we do think that it is important. And we look at communities with uh, high resources or high opportunities and to the extent that we can find sites because it's uh -huh. incredibly expensive to develop in those communities and to the extent that we can develop both political and community support to, the, to those projects, we would love to do to more of them. And the West LA project that I spoke with you mm -hmm. about that we are currently being awarded is definitely in a neighborhood of you know, high resource neighborhoods where there, there are ample opportunities. And again, I think addressing housing throughout the city or region or county, regardless of sort of income level or opportunities is really important because they play different roles in different communities. Absolutely. And we should be giving folks choices. It's really about housing choices. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we're covering the waterfront on the issues of affordable housing here, but are you also buying existing properties, either existing subsidized properties or non-subsidized properies for neighborhood stabilization in gentrifying neighborhoods, I guess, is the yeah. right way to look at it. So, so Matt, I wish I could say that was a nut that we've been able to crack. So probably for, you know, I'm going to say five years, we've been looking at, you know, naturally affordable market opportunities to preserve for affordable housing or at-risk properties. But we work in very high cost markets. So it's just really challenging in places like LA County, Orange County, San Diego County to purchase existing housing and compete with two things out in the market. I think it's a market um, that has is rich in investment opportunities by investors who have all cash and not focused on return. So there's significant buyers there. And you know, as a mission-driven organization, we also want to ensure that our properties, if we buy them in the market, continue to be maintained as affordable. And we have, I think, a different approach to how we operate them. So that has impacted our ability to be competitive in the, in the acquisition preservation market. Now, I'll make a plug for CDT that I'm on the board of. And you know, I think they do an excellent job going into markets and preserving NOAA properties and at-risk properties. But they even have a challenge in the California market, being able to be competitive price-wise, as well as get the return that they need for their for their shareholders. So let's talk about COVID and what that's meant for sure. your business. This has been a crisis mm -hmm. among your population, particularly. This has been an uneven crisis. I remember at the beginning, you know, we're now a year in, and I remember at the beginning, while well, we're all in the same boat, uh, different boats. Oh. It's the K recovery, not the one boat recovery. Exactly. So just kind of... Talk about what you've had to do, what it's meant, what it's meant to your residents, what's meant to your team. 
Yeah. So here we are, what, almost a year later, <laughs> uh, pandemic that some of us thought, oh, we will be working remotely or operating remotely for a couple of months. And now it's been almost 12 months. And Matt, there's just a lot to unpack in terms of what it meant, uh, what it's meant in this period of time. You know, to start with abode communities, our first focused and primary focus was on two things, our residents and making sure that they, during this challenging time, remain stable in their homes. And there are a host of issues of how COVID have, has impacted our residents in particular, and more broadly, people of color. And then, of course, just keeping our employees safe, uh, especially those employees who are out at our property and needing to uh, continue to serve our residents. So in terms of our residents, you know, immediately back on you know, March 13th, when we went to remote operations, our staff, and in particular, our resident services staff also went to remote operations, and they had to think about how do they continue to support our residents during this time. Our, our resident services team and our property management team immediately went to making phone calls and checking in with folks and seeing how they were doing and how they could be most helpful during the period of time. So, you know, early on, we provided a lot of relief opportunities. So getting access to medication, to food, to health resources if they needed them, helping their kids manage and get to distance learning. So we spent an incredible amount of our time focusing on that. At the same time, our property management staff had to go to, you know, how do we maintain our properties in a safe way and keep our residents housed? And so our leadership team and our HR team and our property management team, that was their focus. And of course, we had to think about what it meant for our employees as they went to work from their home and how they continued to work productively and healthy uh, from their homes and, and all of their work. And, you know, I think about our residents compared to, I think, what happens in the general market. And, you know, the COVID cases in our, our buildings have been pretty minimal and our communities are safe. And I think it comes from the care and attention we were able to give to our residents compared to how low-income communities of color have been impacted disproportionately by the pandemic. And so many people of color who are essential workers on the front line, don't have access to health care, are living in uh, tight and difficult conditions. The pandemic has definitely impacted, impacted them pretty significantly. So I'm really happy to report that our residents have remained stable in their homes. As an organization, we, of course, then pivoted to our own financial health and making sure that during the pandemic and the economic downturn, that as an organization, we maintained our, our financial health, but we were also concerned about our portfolio on our properties. So in addition to the national tenant protection and eviction moratoriums, we have here in the state of California and even locally more restrictive ordinance and legislation related to that. So we did stress test analysis on our portfolio to see what might happen if we saw dips and rent collection and what we needed to do as an owner to manage that. We also looked at our own revenue as an organization to see if it was going to fluctuate or decline as a result of the pandemic. And in both of those cases, we saw a decline in revenue at our property as well as a decline in revenue within our organization. 
you know, with the tenant protection and non-eviction moratoriums, we have seen our collection rate go from, you know, early in the pandemic, we still hovered around 97, 98%. You know, over the last couple of months, we've seen that decline to, you know, about 89%. So we're definitely seeing a decline in revenue as our residents who have been impacted in an economic way, you know, loss of job, reduction in income, and struggling to pay their rent. So we're definitely seeing more and more households not being able to pay their rent. So we've had to make uh, take measures to make sure that our organization is sustained during this time and our properties. And then lastly, I think in many ways, we were incredibly lucky in that we saw that affordable housing and construction and development of housing were essential businesses during this pandemic. So we've actually seen our pipeline continue to move forward with a little bit of slowdown when we started to see furloughs in local government. But the, mm-hmm. for the most part, we brought project to completion. We started a new project and we even secured four new projects uh, since the pandemic started. So we are you know, continuing with our production work. Well, so let me unpack a couple of those things. Do you have any way to give a contrast between the disproportionate effect of COVID on people of color, health, just go for health, health outcomes as compared to your residents of color? So this is, uh, you know, speculation based upon right. what I see in our portfolio and, you know, what I hear and read in the news. You know, again, we serve about 10,000 people within our affordable housing portfolio and primarily people of color, Mm -hmm. 95 percent. And I believe we've had less than 10 cases within our portfolio. So you compare that to both the in particular here in Los Angeles County, the overall level and then that among people of color. And again, I think having a safe, affordable place to live has been an essential part of our residents being able to remain healthy during these times. You know, I've heard of stories where you have essential workers, a parent living with her family, a four in a one bedroom apartment, sharing, a, you know, that one bedroom for the three of them, essential worker out there in the community, and she gets the virus. And, you know, how do, how do you then go home and protect your family when you're living in such tight quarters? Again, we've given a lot of attention and care to making sure our properties are extremely clean and taken care of and protective equipment is out at our side and we're enforcing the stay at home orders. And I think, and we're educating our residents around the, 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 around COVID-19 and how it's transmitted and how to protect themselves. So I think all of those things account for just a heightened level of awareness and then safety health health and safety during this time. And and let's amplify that with a different look into the same question about the ability to work from home and the ability to school from home. And gosh, for me, easy. I have a bunch of computers here. I have lousy internet, but that's a different issue. But, you know, I know how to do that. That's easy for knowledge workers, harder for frontline workers. So both for school and for work from home, have you been able to support that? Sure. And one of the things I didn't mention in my opening and I should have is with our resident services program, we are delivering our program remotely. But one of the things that we launched in the fall 
was a virtual platform to deliver our resident services program, in particular, our after-school program. So we're now able to provide that same homework assistance, uh, mentoring and tutoring, college awareness, all of those things mm -hmm. around advancing education that we were able to do at our sites. We're now doing it in our virtually on our website. As part of that process, we did a survey with our residents to understand where, where their technology needs were. So how many of them had access to devices, not only to support their kids, but as you said, if they're working from home, right. do they have devices? Do they have internet access? You know, all of those things so that as we're launching this program, we are able to understand where the digital divide is and where the right. gap is in technology needs and supply those. And interestingly enough, with the, the school districts here, at least in, in Southern California, a number of them have been able to provide, at least this year compared to last year, have been able to provide devices to their students. So we found that maybe about 35, 40% of our residents needed additional devices in the home in order to ensure that the kids have the devices they need to mm -hmm. do distance learning. And if parents were working from home, they had devices as well. We found that most of our residents had access to some type of internet, but I feel like that's an area where we need to drill down to understand how they're getting that access and how much they're paying for the services to see if there's not a, an additional divide there. But Matt, it was a critical thing for us to understand how our residents were managing remotely distance learning during uh, this pandemic and respecting stay-at-home orders. Yeah. And do you not provide internet or is that part of res your package? Because a lot of multifamily owners have a deal with someone, they make money right. off of this, but it's still better internet. So I would say in, this, in the latter half of our properties, uh, we do have uh, internet access available within the properties, but it's really our older buildings where we don't have universal access to internet. And the other thing we're able to do with this virtual platform is we're delivering services now at 23 of our partner properties. With this platform, we're able to expand it to our older right. buildings where physically we don't have the space on site to deliver services. And Matt, as part of that, we will assess sort of the same technology needs that, um, that our residents may have. So that's the second phase of mm -hmm. this virtual platform that we will implement in the next school year. So let's stick with COVID for a minute. And in terms sure. of the impact of, on renters and the impact on landlords, and you're a nonprofit landlord, but a landlord nonetheless, and there's state bills that give you some rights and some obligations and some resources, but maybe not enough. So talk about that. So, uh, you know, abode communities as a landlord, we are mission driven and we're very compassionate. So the tenant protection and eviction moratorium from a you know, policy philosophical level, we completely understood. Families should not be evicted during this time or seniors or any individual during this time mm -hmm. because they've lost a job or because they've experienced reduction in income, you know, completely beyond their control. But we also have to think about what that means for what the eviction moratorium and non-payment of rent means for our tenants because they have accumulated debt obligation over this time, but also our portfolio. So we were very concerned last year when we saw you know, minimal rental relief come down from the federal governments to the states and then the states locally. So we were very happy to see that in the last 
COVID-19 relief bill that, that, that Congress did include renter protection, including rental relief. And back at the end of last month, Governor Newsom signed a rental relief package for California. And that package is targeted towards lower income families, which is one thing that we advocated for as an organization. So it's really targeted to households at 80% of median income and below. It's also sort of duly um, targeted to landlords who directly want to participate in the program and will provide relief for 80% of the rent obligation that's due if the landlord agrees to forgive the other 20%. And then as a landlord, I mean, as a tenant, if your landlord elects not to participate in the program, you can still apply for, I believe it's 25% rental relief. And in addition, I also believe then the landlord uh, cannot take you to a small claims court for the balance. Uh, I'm not 100% sure on that. But this is, a, this is a big sigh of relief for landlords of affordable housing that, you know, it would be challenging to get to that day where because our residents haven't been able to pay rent, we have to make that, that, that choice between eviction, which we would not want to do, and what it means for our properties. You know, I just look today and I would say on an average, our families have probably accumulated up to you know, $20,000 in, in rent um, payment or rent collection at this moment in time. And it's an obligation that we know that they will not be able to catch up on. So we're really relieved that these funds will soon be available to support. But Matt, your question around whether or not the $2.2 billion available in the state of California is enough to meet the entire obligations that landlords may have or tenants may have throughout the state. And I think it's estimated that it may cover about 75% of what the industry sees as the projected uh, obligation or collection loss experience over this 11-month period. We're getting too technical here, but is that covering 75% for people below 80% of median income, or is that covering 75% for everybody? Because I'm as curious about the workforce housing people who are above 80% of median income, but below, you know, where you can really comfortably live, and you get $20,000 worth of debt. That's a big one. So, Matt, this program is specifically targeted to households at 80% of AMI and below. Uh, so that does not take into consideration, you know, individuals who have been impacted financially by losing a job or being furloughed or having a reduction in salaries who are at the 81% and above. Mm-hmm. Painful, which kind of segues into talk about housing crisis in California, talk about supply versus demand versus equity, talk about homelessness, talk about your population of people below 80% of median, but that's not good enough because people below 80, between 80 and 120 struggle with housing costs too. So there's a lot to unpack there. You stand in part of that, but kind of think that through with us. Well, Matt, you uh, know how to deliver the hard ones. (laughs) It's a a very complicated uh, response. And, you know, I think about it in terms of the supply of housing and what's available to a broad range of housing. I think about it from the perspective of income and in particular income inequality. And of late, we've also been thinking about it from the perspective of planning and land use. Like, is there just available land to continue? So just to start with, you know, housing supply 
you know, it's very obvious, obvious in California, especially in high growth markets or high demand markets, that we simply have not built enough housing to keep up with the with the demand. And that is the full range of housing that we need throughout our state. So we do see on one end of the spectrum in places like LA and San Francisco and San Diego, and this is all pre-pandemic, right. you know, we saw a lot of luxury housing being built that was unaffordable to your, your average worker. You know, there is subsidized housing, of course, being built because of available public subsidy program, uh, including the low income housing tax credits, all the bond measures and propositions that we passed over the last few years, so that we are building some housing stock for low and very low and extremely low income households, as well as permanent supportive housing. But the market isn't building that middle income housing, moderate income housing, and we're not building enough on the affordable side. So one issue truly is just the, the supply side, and that has to do a lot with just the cost of building housing, that cost gap. Uh, again, especially in your urban market, right. just continues to increase and, and it becomes infeasible to build that middle income housing. But it's also, as you very well know, having an impact on our ability to continue to build supportive housing and affordable housing. And when you say supportive housing, you mean homeless housing for homeless, mm-hmm. homeless for, for supportive yep. housing for people experiencing homelessness. And then there's income and income inequity. So on the income side, we're just, you know, as we see housing costs increase, we see income, especially at the low and moderate income levels, being pretty stagnant. So, you know, I believe housing costs in L.A., for example, has increased, you know, by four times the level that the income uh, that income has increased in the region. So we're seeing a growing gap between yeah. what people earn and what they can afford. So particular in California, you need to earn a minimum wage owner basically needs to have three jobs working 40 hours a week mm-hmm. to afford the average two bedroom apartment in California, which is which is really ridiculous. And so, again, we're just seeing that big gap between lower wage earners and the higher income earners, and that gap is impacting housing stability and definitely homelessness. You know, one of the things we have found, especially here in Los Angeles, is that when we do the homeless count, when we did the homeless count the year before, one of the areas where we've seen increase in homelessness or people experiencing homelessness is among uh, is for economic reasons, for people who have jobs but just can't afford mm-hmm. to pay rent in the region as well. And then lastly, it is one that, that you know we're battling with in California is, is land use. So mm-hmm. we don't see, as we saw you know, back in the 1950s and 60s, a restrictive land use covenants that prohibit people of color and certain religions, things like that, from living in certain neighborhoods. But what we do is have so many communities that are zoned single-family residential, which then in and of itself precludes a whole group of people that can live in those communities. Mm -hmm. So I do think we have to think about how do we create opportunities within communities that are zoned primarily uh, single-family residential to increase density in a way that is appropriate. So for example, allowing more dense opportunities along commercial corridors. You know, Mm -hmm. some cities do not allow you to build residential within commercial zoning. 
that's an opportunity. Do we, I mean, we've, we've looked at ADUs as a way of increasing density. Is there even going up to four plexes or six plexes? As long as you're able to sort of maintain you know, some level of appropriate density within a residential community. So it's not even a single residential community, but a residential community is what I Got do. Hey, let me go back to something you said. You corrected me kindly because I asked about homeless people, and then you said people experiencing homelessness, which they're two totally different thoughts. Right. I'm going to get emotional as I ask you the question about that, but it's a big deal. Any any comments to your comment? So I think we, partly it's by using the word homeless, we yeah. are calling someone homeless. I think in many ways we create both a stigma and an ability to detach ourselves mm-hmm. because it's not an experience. And that's tr- by saying it's homelessness or a person is homeless, it's not an experience. But when you talk about residents or people being experiencing homelessness, it's their state of being. It's not who they are. It's their state right. of being. And there's, their state of being is that they are unsheltered. It doesn't define them as a person, um, but it's their state of being. And I think if we shift in thinking about people experiencing homelessness, experiencing being unsheltered, it changes the way in which we view the solution to the problem. 100%. I'm thinking of this is probably a millennial word. I think it's othering. By calling it a homeless person, you're othering them and they're not like me because they're one of them, but they could be me. And so when you unother them, then you actually can open your heart and open to solutions. That is absolutely correct. And I'm just saying in the last couple of years, as we stopped using the word to describe people experiencing homeless as homeless and describe them as people with this lived experience that they're having in the moment, it, it sort of visually shifts how we think about it. And therefore, it does open our minds and open our hearts to how we address and approach the, the situation that we're living with with this high level of homelessness, especially street homelessness. Right. There are residents. They're part of our communities. They're our neighbors. They are unsheltered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we're going to move on soon to talk about your career and how you got to where you got. But let me just ask a couple more questions about this because it's, sure. it's so interesting. So think of, I'm going to mash up two different things that are unrelated, but maybe they're not. So during COVID... One is maybe water finds a new level because when you take away the requirement to live near where you work, then mm-hmm. people can, water could reach the level of people moving away. You can live in Nashville and work in Los Angeles and no one knows or wherever it's going to be that you do that. Or in the far suburbs and it doesn't create sprawl and pollution because of that. So that's one thing around COVID. Then the other thing around COVID, when you think of Los Angeles, you think of San Francisco, I don't know about New York, is homelessness would be one of the top things that people who aren't people experiencing homelessness are complaining about their cities. So they want to flee Mm -hmm. back to Nashville Mm -hmm. again as the other Mm -hmm. example. So those are two things that COVID could reset. Matt, it's a really interesting question. And I think, yes, we've made decisions around where we live based upon where we work and where employment centers are and where accesses to resources are. And that may look a little different as we come out of COVID. As you said, you know, people may make the decision, oh, I can 
live, you know, anywhere and work my job with abode communities. I don't have to live in or close to downtown Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So that, that I think it's going to give a group of people, and I will call it the privilege us, totally the opportunity true. to make different housing choices um, around where we live. And so I do think as we continue to develop in the communities and neighborhoods that we are working in, we should be asking the question around who are we developing for and what type of housing needs will this group of people have? It's like, so, but then there are personal choices and there are those who make a personal choice to live in an urban community, a suburban community, or even a rural community. And I do think that there, there will always be a group of people who want to have that more urban lifestyle and, and what it brings. And so we then need to think about what does that mean for the type of housing that we're building and the services that are, are, that are in the community. Again, as I think about the people that we build housing for, I'm not sure that we're going to see that much of a shift Right. Maybe what we'll see is that housing, that ownership of housing becomes more affordable. Mm -hmm. But I feel like the people that we work with, their job centers are still going to be in more urban areas. And they will need to be closer to their jobs and or have access to public transportation. So I don't see as much as a urban flight for lower income wage earners as perhaps higher income professionals who can work more remotely um, than where their, their job is centered. And so, yes, homelessness, in particular street homelessness, has become of major concern for residents here in L.A. and San Francisco and New York, and I would say in Seattle. Right. And it's a big challenge because, you know, I was saying this the other day is that in order for us to address homelessness in our cities, in our regions, one, we have to determine what the need is and attaching a true dollar amount to the solution in terms of how we're going to address it and that we're going to need a spectrum of solutions from the fact that you know street homeless is often caused by mental health, substance abuse, and other uh, social determinants such as those. And so what's the solution for those individuals who are experiencing homelessness and knowing that it may take a long period of time until we can get to that solution. There are people that are couch surfing or just experiencing housing instability and, you know, shelters and bridge housing may be an option for that. Mm -hmm. We absolutely need to continue to build supportive housing to move people from the street into housing and wraparound services. And lastly, we need to continue to build affordable housing that is uh, accessible to people to ensure that people are not slipping into homelessness. So I think there's that full spectrum of right. housing needs um, that we need to address. And is it causing people to make choices about living and staying in the urban cores? Absolutely. You know, I hear people who have made choices to live in downtown Los Angeles and, you know, after years have decided, you know, I, I just cannot continue to live in downtown Los Angeles. And if I don't have to, because my job is not, you know, requiring me to live there, I may make the choice to move out to the sub suburbs or even, you know, the, the next suburban ring out there. So I do think we'll see a shift in where the choices people make about where they live, how they live, 
but it will impact low-income communities of color very mm -hmm. differently. Huge. And, and you just said, again, to think of the words you've used, because you talked about street homelessness at one end of the homelessness spectrum, and at the other end were, was people slipping into homelessness. And the slipping in is because income inequality can't afford it. There's not enough housing supply. Street homelessness, different issue. They're both there. We, we almost, we, they're experienced the same, but they're multiple concurrent issues. That is an absolutely really good point. I think, once again, we define homelessness as one monolithical thing, but it's not. It's this, it's homelessness and it's housing instability. And we have to think about it, again, as a range of options, solutions, and ways in which we need to address these things. And you know, then what, it's not just the, just the shelter and the housing, but also what level of additional mental health, economic, social, other services uh, individuals or families may need to get them into housing and to keep them stable. Right. So last question before we talk about Robin Hughes is talk about the, think about the system that you work in of nonprofit housing and you're the chairman, chairperson, chairhuman of the board of, uh, of that housing partnership network. So just talk about the system of the, those nonprofits that do what you do. And you're the chair of this organization that represents other large groups. And I'll, I'll, I know from history that almost every one of those groups started tiny as a community-based organization but the organizations in your group have all grown to a point of critical mass, as you described for yourself, where operations is half of your mindset and development's the other half, but size and scale does matter. And then having a network of groups that have all achieved that size and scale is, I think, where your industry has gone. So, yeah, so um, I'm going to do just a two-minute pitch for the work that we do with the Housing Partnership Network, and it is the network. So this is an opportunity for organizations like Abode Communities to be among, you know, a hundred of our peer organizations from uh, homeownership counselors to affordable housing developers, CDFIs, all around the table in this really great peer exchange opportunity where we are talking about learning and implementing the best practices, but we're also thinking about what we can do and, and executing on what we can do collectively as a sector that we are perhaps not able to achieve on our own. So we, especially during this pandemic, it's been a really great time for these organizations to come together as leaders in the industry to talk about how we shift and manage our operations in real time to address our organizational needs, our residents' needs, as well as continuing with the production of affordable housing and advocating for resources and system changes in order to make this happen. So I think being part of this collective network organization through HPN, especially for my senior, senior and executive leadership, it is a rare opportunity for them to be among their peers and exchanging business practices, development concepts, development approach, you know, what's happening from a policy advocacy level in our states and in our cities and taking that to a, a national platform. So let's totally shift subjects. Let's talk about Robin Hughes. Okay. How did you get here? Where are you from? How did you start? What was the pathway that kind of educationally growing up that kind of got you into this business? 
Yes. So I am a native Angelino. So I was born here in Los Angeles and South Los Angeles in particular. So this is home for me and I really appreciate and I'm pleased that I'm able to do this really important work in the city where I grew up. It's a really important part of what anchors me uh, in this work. So as I said, I was born in, in South LA. You know, one of the memories that I have very early in my life is living in public housing. So I was, when I was really young, my mom separated from my father and she and her six children moved into Nickerson Gardens and, and Watts near the, it was around the time of the Watts riots too. And, you know, I often say that while I have some really fond memories of that early time and, you know, playing with my friends and families in that community, I can also sort of remember the physical conditions of living in the projects and, and what that meant. And, you know, I can remember you know, hearing about things changing in our community, but, you know, not really seeing anything get done. You know, we were really fortunate that we met the man who had become my stepfather and we moved into a small house in South LA. And, you know, it was wonderful. And I, you know, as I think about the story, I think about the safety nets that we had in our lives. It was actually my, um, my great uncle's house that he grew out of. And so we were able to, to rent his house, which was really wonderful. But living in South LA, you know, I continue to see the impact of disinvestment that in communities where I grew up, we just did not have the type of access to resources that I saw, you know, in other communities. So as I went off to college at USC, so I have my um, public administration degree and undergraduate and graduate degree from USC. So I thought about doing this community development work. I knew that I wanted to do work that was about making investment and bringing investments to low-income communities and communities where I grew up in, in South LA. So as I came out of college, I worked in local government for a couple of years. I worked in the County Community Development Commission doing economic development work. And when Tom Bradley uh, was mayor, I worked for his office doing economic development work as well. And then I was introduced to them, the Los Angeles Community Design Center. And when I looked at the type of work that the organization was doing and the working with community-based organizations, it really drew me in because I saw it as a way of addressing a critical need in the community, which was housing, but in a way that was about, was grassroots in its orientation and was community development approach. And those things were what really appealed to me in this work. And these are the things that sort of keep me connected to our work because I know how transformative what we do is on the lives of the people. So I say that I was really fortunate that early in my career, mm -hmm. I found my calling and this is my calling. My calling is to deliver high quality housing to people <laughs> that truly deserve and need it and that it can be really transformative uh, in, in their lives. So, you know, I sort of think about, you know, the, the housing conditions that I lived in early in my life. And it's like, it's, if I can make sure that, you know, no kid, no family have, has to live in those types of conditions, then, you know, my work would be done. So you can tell I have a long time before my work is done. <laughs> we have a long way to go. <laughs> it's interesting when you talk about the importance of housing, but I want to get back to your career. So, but when you talk uh -huh. about it, I'm, I had this image of shifting sands. 
And if you're standing on two feet, each of which is on a shifting sand that has no permanence, you can't get your balance and figure out where you are unless you're some great yogi. And mm-hmm. so if you take one of those, if you put a foundation under one of those feet, then you can go from there. That is a wonderful analogy. And I think that uncertainty, that instability, that insecurity right. of standing on sand with water coming underneath your feet too, is what so many of our resident ex- experience before they come into our affordable housing. So if we can stabilize one of those points and make sure they have that high quality, affordable place to live, that they can uh, worry less about how to make the rent and worry about being evicted and worried about transferring their kids to new school and all of those things, they can now focus on other things in their lives. What we do see are just the progress in the next generation. So the number of kids in our building who are going off to college for the first time and who are picking these incredible careers. So we have a scholarship programs where we support kids in our building who go off to college. And now we have people that are kids that are interested in science and medicine, law, forensic science, being a you know, criminal detective, you know, those types of things. So it's mm-hmm. really exciting to see how kids in our building are they're breaking that cycle of poverty and they're doing it because they have housing but they also have opportunities to achieve their dream of higher education. So I started as a young project manager on the development side of the office, and uh, the executive director was Anne Sewell at the time, and she is now running our uh, housing department here in in the city of Los Angeles. So I really appreciated you know, and bringing me on as a project manager, but she truly also supported my uh, professional development and leadership development within the organization. And after a few years, I became the housing director for the organization. And then I decided that I needed a little break <laughs> from the really hard work of mm-hmm. being in a nonprofit and building affordable housing. And I went to the private sector. So I worked very briefly for Citibank Mm -hmm. and then for the Richmond group. And I, what I was searching for is, you know, I've always been interested in capital and getting capital into low income communities. So I thought that working in the, on the financial side and the private financial side would give me a greater insight to how to utilize those tools uh, to bring investment into our work. But ultimately, uh, when it came down to the work and where I wanted to be, it is in the nonprofit sector. There's so many uh, reasons in which doing this work in the nonprofit sector with a mission-driven organization that is very much focused on the lives of our residents uh, is what drew me back to the organization. But it was also the opportunity to grow the organization and scale and services and expand and deepen our impact. So I'm really proud of where now we went from the Los Angeles Community Design Center to about communities about 12 years ago, we changed our name, right. uh, where we are now as an organization and the impact that we are able to have. How long did you spend, we don't need the details, but I'll, I'll say why I'm coming back to this. How long did you spend with Citibank and Richmond Group overall? How long were you away? I was only away for 18 months. So it was like okay. having a sabbatical quite frankly. <laughs> That's correct. It, it it was, and, and, uh, 
I was going to say, I think in both cases, while they were uh, rich experiences, I knew what drove me really was the, the development side and being on the ground, delivering the work. Uh, that was really important for me. And that's what I learned most during that 18 month period of time that I was away, what I was most passionate about in this work. What, what does matter and is really interesting for those thinking about this business is you better understand the capital stack. In anything in real estate, but capital stack is heavy because real estate's expensive. There's big numbers. And in affordable housing, it's a very specified capital stack. But if you don't know it, you can't, you can't understand it. You're disoriented. Absolutely. And there are different paths to learning it. You know, I'm really grateful. I think we're really lucky at the, in California in that our major universities now have undergraduate and graduate programs that include affordable housing and affordable housing finance. So here in Southern California, we have USC and UCLA, and up in the Bay Area, UC Berkeley. And you know, young students and who are interested in this work have an opportunity to now have specialized programs and specialized degrees to support them. And then there are a host of training programs out there to help understand affordable housing finance. But it is probably the most critical and most complex part of the work that we do. Absolutely. Okay. So you come back and then did you come back not as the executive director yet or did you? So I came back. So in 1968, 19, excuse me, in 1996, I came back as the uh, president and CEO. Okay, cool. So the board, I remember my interview with the board. It was quite, because it, so I'd only been away for 18 months, as you recall. And so about half the board was about the same and about half the board were new board members. And it was a really exciting interview with the board. And what I appreciate most was I think there was a, a lot of alignment and being in sync about where the organization needed to go, should go at the time, and sort of the growth uh, that the, the board expected of the, the next president and CEO. Um, and that I also ha- had to realize that I could do the job differently, that I could lead and manage and grow the job differently than my approach before. I, I will tell you, you know, quite honestly, I was burned out. I burned out, and this happens in the nonprofit sector, you know, working 12-hour days, six, six days a week, you know, trying to find that work-life balance. And that was a commitment that I had to make to myself when I came back as the president and CEO is managing the organization differently so that culture of burnout did not exist and making sure that I also manage the work. And it's not like I don't bring the work home with me almost every single night, (laughs) but it's just sort of creating that balance. And talk about that stretch. And I'm remembering a conversation you and I had maybe 14, 15 years ago, the first time we spoke. And and I think you said something vulnerable, like I have to learn to manage or I have to learn to let go or I have to learn to have someone else handle some of these things. Yeah. So so imagine it's leadership style. (laughs) Um, I had to change my leadership style. I will say that most of us in this work were A personalities that want to have our hands in everything that we do, that micromanage. And that was not a style that was not going to work if the plan was to grow the organization. But equally important is that I wanted to make sure that my team, my staff felt empowered to do, to make their contribution and to do their jobs. Because I think that was the only way that I could 
truly elevate to this leadership role of president and CEO if I knew I had a team in place who mm-hmm. could execute their respective roles in the organization. It's a learning curve to move from being the person who manages doing it all to managers and teams so they can do all these other cool things that you've been doing as well, because it's around growth, yes. it's around national leadership, it's around learning best from your peers, those things you can't do if you're running a thousand miles an hour to manage every single thing. Absolutely. And, and Matt, one of the things I reflect on in my 25 years is that I also feel like I've had maybe four or five jobs and the job has evolved from being a operating manager early on to being more of a strategic leader visionary that can have national view and national reach uh, in my work. And it's really taken this time to get to that place. And probably the thing that now allows me to do it is a really strong senior management leadership team that I have in place uh, that are who are effectively doing their job, but we have that right balance of sharing responsibility, decision-making, power, and authority that you mm-hmm. have to have within a leadership team. We've heard this throughout all, all the 90-some-odd episodes of Leading Voices is people who become leaders, this is the essence of letting go and moving up all the time. Yes, so let absolutely. me ask a different question about this, which is you're one of the few of your generation African-American leaders in your business and go back to this as the nonprofit housing business nationally, which is a, a little surprising because the residents that you serve are largely people of color, but the people serving them are rarely people of color. So I'm going to mash up two thoughts. That's comment number one. And then comment number two, which I find fascinating, is you said the organization was founded out of values of, what were the words you used, community design center, out of the 60 civil rights values. And so I have a theory that the baby boomer white generation of people in social services of my generation, I'm pointing at me here, uh, on our Zoom call, they brought one set of values. And that set of values is going to be different than both the next generation anyhow, but also uh, people of color coming into these roles. So Matt, once again, a lot to unpack. <laughs> yes. um, but uh, but I'll start with something that we talk about when we talk about homelessness and people experiencing homelessness and making sure that we have at the table when we're talking about solution, people with lived experience. Because I do think lived experience changes in your perspective, but changes how you approach things. So I think about that also in terms of race. Leaders of color will think about and approach our work and community development and housing development differently based upon their lived experience. So I talked about my lived experience living in LA, South LA, urban community where there was disinvestment, but also about how I didn't see change and how um, when people came to the community to talk about change, they often didn't look like me. And those were some of the things that I bring to my work today uh, about how I see how we should do our work, how we should engage in our work, and who we should serve in our work. So my lived experience as an African-American woman has definitely helped to shape and change how I do my, my work. It also shapes to think about this housing system that we work within in terms of how we deliver our work and the housing policy 
that shapes and frames our work as well. So my experience and how I view affecting change and how those resources should be targeted, you know, what priorities should be in place, you know, all those things are affected by my own lived experience as being a Black person of color. And so I think to the extent that we can have more people of color at the table making policy decisions with power who have that lived experience can only help to improve how we do our work and to bring about solutions that may look and feel different, but ultimately get to the core of uh, addressing homelessness, housing instability, inequity, social injustice, all of those things in our work. And we do that, you know, I've I've thought about this, we do that in perhaps four ways. And one we've talked about, one is bringing more Black and people of color into this work. So we have to start at the very beginning, which is encouraging people and young adults in college and, and, and universities to think about affordable housing, community development as a career opportunity and having an impact. And quite frankly, I'm still able to live a pretty solid life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it, that's a really important part of someone who grew up poor, you know, having financial stability in my life is really important. So I'm able to do this work in a place that I can still have a stable life, but deliver on the mission that's important to me. So I think it starts with, uh, you know, let's recruit kids into the industry. But when we get them here, let's sort of make sure that our recruitment and employment practices are done through the lens of of racial equity, that we are bringing people into our organization, but we're supporting their professional development and more importantly, their leadership development within our organizations. Then we're creating those opportunities for promotion, for advancement within our organizations. And, you know, when there is an opportunity to promote someone within the organizations, we are within our organization that we are identifying people of color to advance into those opportunities. But ultimately, uh, Matt, we have to make room. (laughs) We have to make room at the senior management level and executive level for people of color to rise up. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so unless there's room at the top, how the leadership looks in our industry can't change. So it's that progression upwards. And it starts with all four right now. You know, we don't start at the bottom and think think that things trickle up. We start, uh, you know, throughout those four areas that I talked about. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you'd think recruiting would be the answer, but it's not the only answer because it does need to come through the farm system of people growing into the business. I do think there, that we have people in project management positions or mid-management positions that we could cultivate and develop, people of yep. color in particular, that we could cultivate and develop into leadership roles. I also believe that we have Black leaders who are, are Black leaders or people of color who are leading perhaps small emerging organizations that we have to, that the, the, the system and the industry um, could support in elevating to work, you know, in these larger regional, statewide, national organizations too. So it's, again, throughout the system from the bottom to mid-level to the top. It's interesting. It, this is a... I- I don't know if this is a true question, but I'll ask it. There may be people of color who have the capability and education 
to come into the industry and they say, wait a minute, I have the ability to go. I want to just go maximize the dollars instead of working in my community this way. And so you may have more of a self-selection out than the selection in that you want to have. Yeah. So, man, it's a great point. You know, I know that if I made other decisions in my life, like if I would have chosen to stay down the private sector path, mm-hmm. path, um, I probably could make three times as much money as I make now. And so it was a very personal decision to work in this sector and to do this work in this sector. But it was something that I could still manage in my life. But I see people all the time making those choices between real income and psychic income. It's interesting. It, we're going to wrap up, but in, in my business as a recruiter at the moment, people are saying, come on in, but they're not necessarily ready to welcome or know how to welcome or prepared to do what it takes to make people, to help people to be successful. But right so now, may, there's may a I ask break. you a question? Yes. <laughs> may I ask you oh, a please. Question? So, <laughs> so, how does your firm, because you're seeing that and you know it's reality. Right. Um, so, how does a firm like your firm support the sector, the real estate sector, to be more inclusive, to be more diverse, and to view their recruitment through the eyes of racial equity, inclusion, and diversity? So it's interesting. We're, of course, debating it because we're all learning and we're all moving and we're all growing at the same time. And we're not, as recruiters, ahead of the curve. We're sensitive to the curve, but we're not any further ahead of the curve than you are. So there Uh becomes two issues. One is, how do you identify these people? And it used to be when I started as a recruiter, if you identified someone of color and you put a little checkbox in your database, you go to jail, right? This is a bad thing to do. <laughs> and same with women, right? Because we have the same, same issue or different issue. But now we're tracking people of color because you want to be able to say, hey, here's a candidate pool. And now it's legal to do that because you're doing it on the right side of the equation. Mm-hmm. So one is, how do you identify the supply that you have? And we are debating this and working on best practices across the board. And so our, our colleagues and competitors and every company is trying to identify folks. And the second thing is, how do you make the industry one where people do want to come in? So how do you increase the supply of people? And, and I think that's the more important issue at the end of the day. Um, but once, but you ha- we have to do both. And right now, when you're having, and in the nonprofit housing world specifically, you're going to have a leadership transition because a lot of those baby boomer generations been in those jobs for a long time not referring to you, but for some of these people, it's time to move on. And then how do we then either within the organization, but often the leadership team has grown old together. And this is across you know, the business. It's not just in nonprofits, but then how do you find those, that next generation of leaders? So that's finding people yeah. already in the system, finding people adjacent to the system who <laughs> could come in and add a lot of value and then it's the farm system and getting people early in their careers. And, and people, I do believe that young people want to increasingly do want to have careers of meaning. And people don't, a lot of people just want to make money, but there's a combination of making a living and making a difference, making, having meaning in your job. And I think young people, that, that resonates. Yeah. So Matt, I'm glad you talked about that outer ring, because I think oftentimes when we look at recruitment and we think about hiring people, we look in our inner ring. And our inner ring right now is very much a white inner ring. 
Um, so I think opening up where we look and how we source uh, employment opportunities at all levels of our companies, it's really important how we connect to associations of color in a, in a much deeper way than I, I think we do as an industry is, is really critical. Because you may find that perhaps this leader has been doing this work and some other aspect of real estate or, or building or development or something like that, and, and bringing them into, into our leadership environment. So it does mean we then, um, and I don't want to call it risk, <laughs> but we take a different level of, of risk. We know that there is going to be a growth curve that may be different than someone that comes with a, a, a set of issues. But I also, again, think that's the really great thing about our industry. We embrace innovation. We embrace entrepreneurship. We embrace change. So if we can do that with the lens of racial equity in our employment practices, I think that's a way in which we expand the, the supply. So the supply goes beyond our inner circle right now. Can I ask you the final question that I always ask people sure. on Leading Voices, which is if you had two minutes for advice for a young person getting into your industry, what would that advice be? One, it is such a fulfilling career. I am so excited and passionate about what I do every day. My daughter has never heard me at the dinner table complain about not liking my job. So it is frustrating at times, but it is really a place where you can have impact. I will also say, and I said this earlier, it's a place where you can still have a sustained, healthy financial life. You don't have to live in poverty uh, to work for the nonprofit sector. So, um, so you can still take care of your needs. And what I love about, the other thing I love about this job is that we get to learn so much every day uh, in this work. Our controller, who is, you know, I, Flora won't tell me. I think she's like in her 60s. But she says what she loves about being a controller, a very seasoned controller, is that she feels almost every year she learns something new, which is really exciting for her. So I think young people coming into this sector, it's a, it's a field that throughout your career, you're learning something new. You're advancing uh, in different ways than you would ever expect. And then lastly is that you get to see impact. You really get to see the work that you put into this job, into this career result and transformative change physically in neighborhoods, but also in people. And that is incredibly satisfying as well. Totally agree. So the message to young people is come into this business. You can make a good living. You can make a difference. You can learn every day. You can be excited. It's wonderful. Absolutely. Okay. Hey, Robin, thank you for being on the podcast. We have a lot to talk about later on, which we'll do, but this has been a wonderful conversation. So thank you. Yeah, Matt, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. Um, and I look forward to the next time we're together. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices. And I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.